2010, I digitized and put all my music out on a Blogspot kind of placeholder just to archive it, make it available publicly for download and whatever. And I also put together a couple of like those generic Ken Burns videos to just to get them on YouTube because that wasn't remains kind of the dominant mode for people to pass around music conversationally over Twitter. Back then, YouTube's copyright infringement analysis wasn't as strong as it is now. There really wasn't much in place. You could you could find any song ever, every top 40 hit. But for some reason, within about a week of me posting my stuff, I got a copyright infringement notice filed by something called The Orchard. And I thought, God, that is strange because I don't. I had been on really small labels, but right around that time, there were articles and stuff about The Orchard Group buying all these indie distributors are, are taking control of the digital side of their business and that included the the small label I was on by virtue of it being distributed by Darla. After going on a kind of acquisition spree with these low-level indie distributors, 50% of the orchard was uh, acquired or you know a stake was taken by Sony and relatively soon after that they started a partnership arrangement with French Kiss. French Kiss was founded by Sid Butler. He's the bassist from Le Savé Fav and it was like a total hipster blog band uh, label that was on the make in the early 2000s. They were trying to sign all like the nth rate interpols and strokes that were playing pianos in North Six. Whether the music was really that great, you had the same kind of small person-to-person reinforced network where, like, you can be a band, you can start a band, and then I'll be the rock writer who's going to write about you on my blog, and I'll post an MP3 of that, and then all the people who read my blog will read about that, and then I have my identity. It was like a rich media flyer board. Blogs were like zines. It was a way in which the internet was allowing you to have this richer, more direct experience in doing the same kinds of things we'd always done, you know, with zines and, and seven inches and whatever on a much more affordable basis and in a way that was instantly recognized and distributed among that social network. The whole thing pretty much flamed out when the hype machine happened. The immediacy of the attention around these bands, the the, the instant reflexive quality of the internet made it so that publicists and promoters could get these bands booked in traditional media outlets. And so that's why you have them playing Letterman before anyone knows who they are. That was appropriate, really, because Letterman's hallmark was you know putting R.E.M. on in 1983, which was crazy. And, and you have it today, with, with Future Islands getting such a shot on Letterman. When you have the right people, the right pluggers, that's when those cool moments can happen when, when you have a grand, old-style opportunity like that made available to a young band. And I, I love that, and I love that it's still possible. And that, to me, was the most important thing about Future Islands was that they proved that you could still go out there like the Strokes had and have some really memorable performance like that, that $2 bill MTV thing. People love to talk about the moguls and the Svengali's in Pop's past. You know, Maurice Starr, Quincy Jones, the Colonel, Malcolm McLaren, Russell Simmons, all these outsized personalities like Joe Meek who molded and, and variously took credit for the success of pop stars that they worked with. And, they, you know, they like to talk about Seymour Stein because Seymour Stein was out in front on punk rock and CBGB. He signed the Talking Heads and the Ramones. He signed Madonna. But nobody ever talks about his partner, Richard Goderer. 
if you told me when I was a kid that 57 years later, I was going to have a copyright injunction filed against me for the way in which I chose to promote my own music by the author of My Boyfriend's Back. My Boyfriend's Back. You've been spreading lies and I was untrue. Richard Goddard, along with Jerry Goldstein and Bob Feldman, was one of the Brill Building writers. He, he's one of the guys that was coming up with the songs and looks and ideas for all these Hit Factory girl groups in the early 60s. And, I, you know, I don't know if they, they got impatient or they weren't getting enough traction with the different kind of cliques that were kind of isolating themselves in the Brill Building with the success of Simon and Garfunkel and Neil Diamond and all these other people. But what they did is they came up with their own idea. And instead of applying it to another group or manufacturing a group to kind of slap it on, they went out on their own with one of the most hilarious, brilliant, ridiculous things in the history of pop music. They, they put this together with such an attention to detail. It was, there was so much backstory. You would have thought it was something that would, you would come up with today. You know, in the internet era where you needed to hide the metadata footprint of, of your secret fake project. It went over everyone's head. And, and I mean, ultimately, it was totally unnecessary to have created such an amount of pettifogging around the Strange Loves. But in that way, it's the coolest fucking thing. Like, what they did is they, they claimed they were from Australia, and for whatever reason, they wore, like, zebra prints and had, like, spears and shield. It was really awful, like, ethnically shallow African tropes. They said their names were Niles, Miles, and Giles Strange, and that they crossbred a new kind of sheep, the Godderer. They made so much money out of genetically breeding the Godderer that then they became a band. You know, they were trying to be exotic. You know, so exotic is a weird thing. In the case of the Strange Loves, what you're trying to do you're trying it's like Saturday morning cartoons. You're trying to appeal to little kids. That's how I index the visual element of the Strange Loves at any rate. So nineteen sixty-four, they had a huge hit, My Boyfriend's Back by the Angels. But the thing about it that's so funny, when you listen to My Boyfriend's Back, you, you got these really throaty, raspy female singers, and you think of something like the Shangri-Las, you know, you think of like street tough young biker girls out in Queens, you know, hanging off their greaser boyfriend's shoulder. He used to When you actually see the angels, they're like the worst stereotype of a 1950s housewife. They've got like the brushed under bob and the terrible Sunday dresses. I think this is part of the strain the guys were feeling. Um, and so they used the strange loves gambit as a way to just break out of that. By the mid 60s, the whole like rebel without a cause, sock hop, rock and roll, greasers thing, you know, it's all kind of ending. Pop music beat was becoming a grab bag of ideas and imagery. It was less about the content of the song because television is now a factor and more about the look of the band. This is when the Beatles are coming out with Help, right? Help's not a documentary. It's a feature-length movie in which the musicians are actors doing skits. Shut me finger, you know. Stop trying to drag things down to your own level. It's immature, son. The Beatles are so famous by this point, they are pre-recording clips, video clips, to give the television stations to play over the air in lieu of, you know, a live performance from the Beatles. These are the first promo clips because they can't be everywhere they're wanted. They are too famous. Help! One, two, three, four! Help! I need somebody! Help! Not just anybody! 
And TV stations were bullshit over this. They thought it was the most arrogant thing they had ever heard of. It starts in 64. In 65, it's where everything kind of explodes at once. The monkeys shoot the pilot for their show in 65. And then you got Paul Revere and the Raiders, Sam the Sham and the Pharaohs, all this stuff going on. You know, and it, with, with that kind of background, I don't really understand how anybody was going to call out the monkeys as being an egregiously manufactured idea. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying everything was gimmickry. There were some stone fucking classic songs that came out in 65. You got Junior Walker and the All-Stars, Shotgun. Billy Preston did this fucking shredding version of Satisfaction on Shindig. Then you get Rubber Soul, and the Beatles start complaining about their packaging, their lack of artistic control, and, and that's when this whole idea of authenticity kicks in, and pop music stops being about pop and starts treating itself like art. Looking back at it you know, through that lens, 65 is like the kaleidoscopic pinnacle of this early, innocent phase of pop music, and the Strange Love are, are like emblematic of the last gasp of the innocence you know, of approaching pop music as stagecraft. Because these guys are producers and songwriters, and they think of, you know, putting on a show. And they ended up doing some great stuff. I Want Candy's not even my favorite Strangelove song. It's a later single called Carolyn. Off these cuts, you know, they were doing really well. They were out on tour with the Dave Clark Five at the peak of their success. Dave Clark Five had big hits on the radio. They're getting tons of press, way above the Strange Loves, who, you know, again, they're considered completely out there. And, and they're also hiding behind this image. They're not doing lots of press. Early in the tour, Dave Clark Five hear this song in the Strange Loves opening set, and they're like, you know, we're going to go record that. We're going to the studio next month. And Strange Loves are like, shit, 
because you know Dave Clark Five can make that a hit in ten seconds. So in an effort to front run losing control of this song, when they're on tour in Ohio, the Strange Loves here, this local band, Rick Z and the Raiders. The lead singer is a seventeen-year-old kid named Rick Zeringer, uh, which very quickly becomes Derringer. So they grab Rick, they put out this Strange Love song with him singing over it. But they don't call themselves the Strange Loves. They come up with a new name, the McCoys. Comes the number one song in the country. Hang on, Sloopy. After 66, you know, the, the summer of love stuff's coming around. You know, these guys are sharp. They know the writing's on the wall. The strange love concept's out of gas. So Richard Goddard and Seymour Stein found Sire Records in 1966, and they run it together uh, until the mid-'70s when Goddard decides that he wants out of the business end and kind of back into music, and he becomes a full-time producer. You know, he was down at CBGB's, too, keeping tabs on new music. He, he produced the debut albums for Blondie, for Richard Hell, uh, Marshall Crenshaw, and the Go-Go's. I mean, that's that's the reason the Go-Go's go from being like a trashy, second-rate L.A. glam band to, you know, international superstardom or whatever. It's Richard Goddard. They went to the studio with him, and they're like, we just want to be famous. Can you make us famous? And he's like, yeah, I've done that a bunch of times. So he takes We Got the Beat. He makes it a lot less like Joan Jett, and he turns it into like a snappy Strange Love type song. He takes the kind of mid-tempo throb of Our Lips Are Sealed, and he smooths it out so it has a nice break and, and some you know twinkly piano and guitar lines in there. Comes a really nice radio-ready bob and weave. So he kept active, you know, um, right up into the 90s, and, and that's when he saw the opportunity to get into this digital servicing part of, of the internet. You know, before anybody realizes what the internet means or is going to mean for music, he's already kind of building the bridge between the existing music industry that ultimately is destroyed by the internet and um, the one that's going to come down the road, which is going to be upside down, you know, no overhead, no profit. But it's put him in a really unique position, and the, the cool thing is he's never abused it. At no point in his past did he take all the connections and, and power that he had and use it to skew things, you know, to, to get a band that he liked or a project he worked on up on power versus talent and quality. And he continues to conduct himself that way. He did the Dum Dum Girls album. He managed the Ravenettes. After I did this video in early 2013, his assistant contacted me and said, I showed this to Richard and he loved it. He said it reminded him of the old days and he, he really enjoyed it. I mean, the idea that this guy watched this video, which this podcast is a you know, re-recording of, where I'm just ranting and raving about how cool all this stuff he did is, and you know, not knowing shit. What do I, I was born in 1975. You know, he's in the studio recording... And the idea that, you know, he builds his relationships and his companies around people who are plugged in. It's just further evidence of the way this guy has staged his career. He's continued to surround himself with good people, people who, you know, pay attention to new, interesting ideas. With the deal with French Kiss, you get the sense that he's handing the ball off, you know? 
Uh, he's worked hard to shepherd and contribute to how this whole digital sea change is going to work. He wasn't he wasn't able to prevent anybody from getting cut off at the knees in terms of being able to make money at music anymore. But rather than close up shop and just take your ball and go home, you know, he's stuck in there. And I look at him as a magnate for the classic music industry in that way. He was sticking up for it. You know, he's trying to keep things working and keep everyone focused on why they ever cared about this stuff because the only people who are going to be pissed off when music stops generating as much money are the people who are into it to make money everyone else is going to keep plugging away and Richard Goddard is one of those people there were loads and loads of kids who were so excited about these new opportunities that were presented by the internet and by digital music distribution generally, even before the internet had, you know, kind of matured. But none of them understood music's history, you know, as an industry and a craft. They didn't speak that language. And that's the kind of swan song to his career is how he sewed that all together. And he kept the people that he came up with and drove the music industry with throughout the 60s and 70s and 80s. He kept people from getting bitter, you know, and from losing sight of the fact that this thing's always been about the kids. Mm -hmm. 